And so one of the ways I do that in this book is combine the biblical theological approach to covenants, where you look at each passage, like, uh, like I said, Adam and then Noah, yeah. uh, Moses, but also combine that with the overarching sort of the huge umbrellas under which everyone stands. And that is the ultimate two covenants between uh, God and Adam, the covenant mm-hmm. of works, and then God and Christ and the covenant of grace. And so all of these other covenants fit uh, within that framework. Mm-hmm. And if you can understand nothing else from the book, I hope that will be mm-hmm. one of the takeaways is that ultimately there are two men and those two men are Adam and Christ and one's relationship to them uh, is, is key. Welcome to the Guilt, Grace, Gratitude podcast featuring Peter Bell and Nick Fulweiler. This is a show about Christian doctrine for everyone from the historic Reformed tradition, delivered by two friends in an unscripted dialogue. Join us as we discuss how the finished work of Jesus Christ changes everything. Hey guys, before we start this episode with Dr. Brandon Crow on his new book, The Path of Faith with IVP Academic, Please listen to the end of this episode to find out how you can grab a copy of this book. Dr. Brennan Crowe is a professor of New Testaments at Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia. So I hope you guys enjoy this episode and we'll see you on the other end. Are you in the Orange County or Santa Ana area? We are exploring a church plant, Santa Ana Reformed, with the oversight and accountability of Oceanside URC and Reverend Danny Hyde. If you are interested or you know someone who might be interested in the area, please check out our show notes for a link to sign up for updates. Our Twitter or Instagram at guiltgracepod or Santa Ana URC for the same sign up link or simply email us at santaannareformed at gmail.com. We begin meetings on October 28th at 6.30 p.m. at 4th Street Market in downtown Santa Ana. Now on with the episode. Hello, everyone, and yet it's another day of fresh grace and mercy. This is a book club episode, and you're listening to the Guilt, Grace, Gratitude podcast, where we bridge the gap to Reformed Christian theology for your listening pleasure. As a reminder, we are a member of the Society of Reformed Podcasters, and we do happily promote Maypark churches. So check out our show notes for more information on that. Uh, thank you to IVP Academic, the publishers of today's book, uh, The Path of Faith, A Biblical Theology of Covenant and Law by Brandon D. Crow. This is part of a series of books under the Essential Studies in Biblical Theology, which we'll describe more during the show. Uh, I'll let Peter go ahead and introduce our guest today. Yeah, we have... Dr. Brandon D. Crow, professor of New Testament at Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia, and he's also the book review editor of Westminster Theological Journal. He's an author of a couple books, some of them, The Message of the General Epistles and the History of Redemption, Hope of Israel, The Last Adam, and he's also co-editor with Carl Truman of The Essential Trinity, and we are very excited to have him on on our show. Thanks for coming on, Dr. Crow. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thank you. Uh, Good morning. Uh, and you said you were in Chile, Pennsylvania, and we're in sunny California. <laughs> it's, it's sunny, but chilly. So, it, oh, best of both <laughs> yeah. worlds, maybe. Yeah. Um, did you grow up in Pennsylvania? No, I never came to Pennsylvania until I came to interview at Westminster Seminary uh, back in 2009. Uh, so, I grew up in Alabama and uh, hmm. was born in Kentucky, but grew up in Alabama. Uh, I did 
seminary in Orlando uh, at RTS and then went overseas for a PhD at University of Edinburgh and then went from there to uh, to Westminster. Ah, very nice. So I'm a Southern guy. I like the hot weather, the humidity. I like your shirt to stick to you when you walk out the door. <laughs> the kind of weather I like. Well, I was going to. That's the kind of weather I don't like. I was going to say, with your accent, we could tell you're probably not from Pennsylvania, but I just wanted to get that background for the audience. Um, yeah, before uh, we jump into these questions based on your book i always want to not assume the audience understands definitions and terms so just for everyone um starting from the beginning you know how can you define covenants just so we can kind of start there and then kind of work down well part of what i'll do in the opening i guess the introduction of the book is try mm -hmm. to get some definition to those terms because uh the, that's a term covenant and law this is the other part of the book. Those are terms that are thrown around a lot. Yeah. And people mean different things by them. And some people have positive impressions. Some have negative impressions. Uh, but covenant from a biblical theological perspective is basically a, uh, it's like a contract. It's a, it's a binding commitment between two parties. And these are serious. There are implications if you obey. There are blessings, you might say. And there are implications if you don't obey. And that is um, curses. And these are things that are typically ratified with an oath or some kind of a ceremony, uh, and they abide in perpetuity. Mm -hmm. And so there are a number of different ways to think about covenants, and there's some flexibility there in Scripture. But at its root, a covenant is a binding arrangement between two parties. And often, one is a greater party and one is a lesser party. And so when you read the Old Testament, it's really interesting because uh, there are these things that maybe some of your listeners have heard called suzerain vassal treaties. <laughs> yeah, it's a great word. seminary yep. type of concept that seminary students get to learn about. A suzerain vassal treaty simply is a, a type of ancient treaty or covenant from the era of the ancient Israelites. And by studying those from the parabiblical world, you know, the uh, next door neighbors to the Israelites, we can learn something about how these functioned. And so if you look at, for example, the Ten Commandments, the book of Deuteronomy, mm -hmm. uh, these take very similar forms to some of these ancient uh, vassal treaties. A vassal is a, is a servant, you know, so a suzerain would be a king, like a czar, same word, basically, and a vassal would be a subject. So you often have these greater kings or kingdoms making these treaties uh, with the lesser kingdom, sort of like an ancient version of the godfather, maybe. <laughs> and uh, But you also have a more flexible way that covenant can be used, a more theological sense, if you would, uh, which deals with the overarching structure of the Bible. And so I, in this book, I will speak about covenant in both of those ways. Mm -hmm. There's a more historical way to talk about covenants, like the, the suzerain vassal treaties. But there's also a more systematic approach to covenants that builds on the content of scripture that has these covenants in them. Uh, and, and then we'll look at some of these overarching pillar type of covenants. And so when you look at, and just to get a little more meat on the bones there, when you look at scripture, you will find people making covenants with each other in scripture. And, and, but the, the bigger, the bigger covenants are those that God makes with people. And when God makes a covenant with people, that's what we really want to pay attention to. Uh, more than you know 
some of the patriarchs making covenants with those around them. But it shows you that God is speaking to his people in ways that they can understand and that makes sense to them, that they understand the contours of relationship, but also obligation, benefits, but also requirements. And those ancient uh, documents provide some kind of a helpful context for understanding what's going on throughout scripture when you see that word covenant. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and in a, in a good way, there is a quite a resurgence in interest about covenant theology lately. Um, what are you hoping this book adds to the conversation? My hope in this book is that it will appeal to a wide range of readers. This is a Reformed theology book. Mm -hmm. I'm Reformed, but it's also designed to explain the Bible as simply as possible. Mm -hmm. And and so one of the things that that I want to show is is how unified the biblical message is. And things can get really complicated. I think dispensationalism, for example, is very complicated. When you understand which portions carry over to the New Testament, which portions were for a limited time, which were not. And so as you read through covenants and you see the way they build on each other, and and that's the way the book is approaching the the question. You start with Adam, Noah, Abraham, Moses, David, look at the prophets, then look at the new covenant and just see the way that they build on one another. I hope to show how... not, not to put it in, the, in a simple way, but how simple the Bible is. It just builds on itself throughout the whole thing and help people connect the new to the Old Testament to help them understand why the Ten Commandments are important, to help them understand what Jesus is, is doing in the New Testament, and to see there's some things that don't change at all across the covenant administrations, even though there are some things that do change. And certainly when Christ comes, one of the yeah. things and that's a real balance in this book. This book is about not only covenant, but the obligations to covenants, the law. And, and, and I didn't define law, but that's a term that's got a, a lot of disagreement about how you interpret that term. I think the term is used five or six ways in the Bible, and it just depends on what passage you're in. Law could mean the law of Moses. That's often what it means, but it can mean more generally God's overarching requirement on humanity and i think that's there more often than maybe we see and so we're trying to bring these together and see how that when god enters into relationship with us he gives us immense blessings but he does set the parameters for that relationship at the same time we cannot obey those perfectly and so when we think of covenant we always have to think of christ as the one who is the faithful covenant member who obeys god perfectly and does what we could not do. Amen. And so without calling, uh, without um, missing our calling for, for obedience, it's important to see what Christ does is unique. And that ultimately is our hope. And so one of the ways to do that in this book is combine the biblical theological approach to covenants, where you look at each passage, like, uh, like I said, Adam and then Noah yeah. Uh, most, but also combine that with the overarching sort of the huge umbrellas under which everyone stands. And that is the ultimate two covenants between uh, God and Adam, the covenant mm-hmm. of works, and then God and Christ and the covenant of grace. And so all of these other covenants fit uh, within that framework. Mm-hmm. And if you can understand nothing else from the book, I hope that will be mm-hmm. one of the takeaways is that ultimately there are two men and those two men are Adam and Christ, 
and one's relationship to them uh, is is key. Yeah, yeah. And that's that's I mean part of the reason why I like the book so much <clears throat> is within kind of recent books or even kind of um, historical books on covenant theology, they're deep and thick, but they're kind of hard to understand. And I like the balance that this book, that your book struck between being deep and concise, but also simple. So there wasn't much that was left out. Just the big words were defined well, or I think sometimes left out for a simpler word that described the same thing. Well, these are really complicated issues. Uh, they are. Uh, and the new perspective on Paul, debates about the law, um, the debates about covenant theology, uh, dispensationalism, uh, new covenant theology, reform theology. There's a lot of complexity there. Yeah. And certainly I, I'm aware of that complexity. Um, I've read various viewpoints on these things. I don't get into that too much in this book. No. Um, my, I, I am reformed. Uh, I'm writing from a reformed perspective. And in my opinion, uh, not surprising perhaps to you, that I think <laughs> the reformed theological approach gets it right. Um, yeah. I think it does the best justice to the text. Now, these are complicated issues that that I, I remember when I was in seminary really struggling through them. You know, what does it mean? Uh, does, the, does the law of Moses require perfection uh, or does it not require perfection? Uh, was Adam really given a covenant in the garden? Because the term is not used in Genesis 1 to 3 for a covenant. Yeah. Right. Um, is perfect obedience necessary for eternal life? Some of these questions are really difficult. And to be honest, the best exposition of some of those questions I find to be chapter 19 of the Westminster Confession of Faith. Yeah. Yep. Something I mentioned in passing probably in the book, there's maybe a footnote to it. But if your listeners are curious where, where the framework comes from for the law in particular, chapter 19 of the Westminster Confession really does repay careful consideration. I, I think it's it gets it really, really um, accurately well done. Yeah, well, yeah, we'll link that that part of the confession to the show notes too to give people some some background for this as well. Yeah, I, <clears throat> not to go in the weeds, but yeah, I definitely echo Peter on it's it's a complicated subject that you you described the best way, most simplified way. You really bridge the gap from our reformed doctrinal understanding of covenants to the broad evangelical world where I personally had a background in from, uh, I was Roman Catholic and, you know, kind of broad evangelical as well. And I, you know, my understanding covenants was I did more dispensational. And so walking into this, how you lay it out chronologically, two main umbrella covenants, you know, and the, the covenants underneath in chronological order too. And so you do connect covenant and law from genesis to revelation in the book and i guess my question i would have is can you define how you see a connection between the covenant and law from genesis to revelation uh throughout scripture as well yeah as simply as as possible i would just say that every covenant brings obligations now mm -hmm. with adam's uh, with adam's covenant things were a bit different well quite different because you have no sin had entered the world and God mm. held out the prospect of increasing experience and permanence of eternal blessed life. If Adam chose to obey rather than chose to follow what his eyes saw and so forth. So that's different. But from that point on, once the covenant of grace enters in, look at Genesis 3.15 and the promise that there's going to come a, a mediator, the seed of the woman. 
And all of those assume that somewhere along the line, somebody's got to do this to live. And there's Leviticus 18.5, which is a, a very difficult passage, widely debated passage. But I think Leviticus 18.5 is a principle you find in the Mosaic Law that reminds us of the principle given to Adam, which is eternal life is ultimately contingent upon someone perfectly obeying. So that never goes away. But what you have in the covenants are requirements that we could say uh, reflect God's moral law. And the place we see that is the Ten Commandments. And that what Adam was given in the garden was something like the Ten Commandments on his heart. And throughout these, uh, these covenants, those, the moral law is always there. With Moses, it's, it's got a lot more uh, to it, is a lot more sacrificial systems, civil legislation, and so forth. But that moral law remains at the core, even with Moses. That's why you have the Ten Commandments on stone, in, written by God's finger himself in the Ark of the Covenant. And the, those Ten Commandments are basically the plumb line throughout the covenant administrations to see what is ultimate. For example, before the Ten Commandments are given with Abraham, he knows that it's wrong to murder. They, those around him know it's wrong to commit adultery. Uh, and as you get further into the biblical canon, what's, what you see is these earlier laws are, are assumed and, and they build on those and they call you back to faithfulness to the moral law. And that's true both in the prophets, it's true in the New Testament with the gospels, it's true in the letters of the New Testament. And so every covenant administration has obligations. Now, those obligations that the covenant members live by don't save them. They're saved by faith. This is Genesis 15, 6, which is so crucial. Paul returns to it in Romans 4. And Psalm 32, also quoted in Romans 4. Abraham was not saved by circumcision because he was justified by faith well before circumcision. Yeah. He was justified by faith. The promise to Abraham came by faith. And yet, he still had obligations to the covenant. And you see how important these are. Just to dip in very briefly uh, to a difficult passage, which is Exodus 4. Um, I'll, I'm not going to say too much about that passage, but uh, Moses apparently had not circumcised his children, and, and the Lord was angry with, with Moses. And Zipporah apparently had to circumcise the children and abated God's anger. So you see how important circumcision is in the Old Testament. It's the sign of the covenant and was taken seriously. But Romans 4 also makes it clear Abraham wasn't saved by doing that. And so you have the consistent call to obligation that does not save the covenant member. They're saved by faith. Old Testament and New Testament, they're saved by faith. And just parenthetically, you see in the New Testament, when they want to talk about justification by faith, they talk about David. They talk about Abraham. They talk about Rahab even. They are saved by faith, not by obeying the law of Moses. And yet, those obligations never go away in the Old Covenant or in the New Covenant. Jesus gets all over the Pharisees in the Sermon on the Mount for paying attention to small things, but not the most important things. And Paul will say, you can't just throw out the law because we fulfill the law. Romans 8, for example, we fulfill the law in the estate of, of grace that we have in Christ. And we don't uh, break down the law. We uphold the law. And that is to say the spirit renewed person walking by faith is actually obeying the commandments. Galatians 5, for example, as well. This is the law of Christ in 1 Corinthians 9.21, which I, I take to be basically the moral law of God uh, fulfilled and, and explained by Christ. 
And so you, you have the obligations that never go away that are not optional for the covenant members. And, and here's where the tension rises between justification and sanctification. Mm -hmm. And those, uh, those uh, covenant members cannot earn their salvation by obedience. And yet the obedience is not optional. The way that eternal life is secured is through the last Adam who comes and does this and lives in the way that Adam did not do. And we have forgiveness of our sins through Christ. And yet that does not render our covenant membership, uh, obedience as covenant members optional, but that still remains necessary. Yeah, that's good. You've, you've touched on it a little bit with, um, with uh, David, with Adam, with Abraham, with Moses. So these covenant heads, if you can describe that real quick, and then why does this help us so much in seeing the Bible as, as one unified story versus kind of disparate parts that don't make sense together? Mm -hmm. Well, uh, you, you mentioned the term covenant heads, and it depends on who you're reading, how they use that term. Uh, a covenant uh, head, or some might call covenant mediators, something like this. I, I prefer the term covenant head to be limited to two people, and that's Adam and Christ. They're the heads mm -hmm. of two covenants. Uh, because all the other covenants subs are subsumed under Adam or Christ. And so uh, maybe a better word there might be a covenant mediator, that God mm -hmm. makes the, the covenants with people, with Noah, uh, first of all with Adam. That's yep. a, in a different category. But then you have Noah, Moses, I'm sorry, Noah, Abraham, Moses, David, and then Christ. So understanding these covenants and I've got a, a chart there in the book that sort of summarizes yeah. what, what they are. They build on one another. So what that means is each one that comes later assumes what came before and adds a bit more information to it. So you're not starting uh, completely new each time it comes. So when Moses comes, we're already assuming Noah and we're assuming Adam. When David comes, you, you don't have the law of God given again. You have a reminder uh, of text from the law and in the Davidic covenant, which has to do with the kingdom. Uh, and let me back up. With Adam, you have the promise of eternal life on the basis of perfect obedience. With Noah, you have a recreation of the world, a renewal of the world. Uh, and they are called again to be fruitful and to multiply. And God promises that the whole world will be stable until the end of the world. Well, then here comes Moses who brings people out of Egypt and the promise is there's going to, I'm sorry, I, I skipped over Abraham, didn't I? You have Abraham, which is the promise of a family. Yeah. And the family is going to grow and increase and have a promised land. And Romans 4, again, says ultimately that promise was for the renewal of the earth, uh, for the inheritance of the earth, you should say. I should say, Romans 4, 13. Then Moses brings that family out of Egypt. And the promise is for really the promised land. And there's a law given to them to govern how they live in God's presence in the promised land. Well, then David comes, and with David, you have the assumption of, uh, he assumes the family, he assumes the exodus, he assumes the laws of Moses, but now you have more explicit focus on a king and on a kingdom, which is huge for the New Testament. Mm. And so you have more and more specificity uh, as you go along. You have now the royal nation of Israel is going to be focused preeminently in a representative leader. And that is going to be a king who's going to lead God's people. Uh, and then in the new covenant, what you have is Jesus fulfilling all of these. He is the new Adam. Uh, he is going to be uh, the fulfillment of the promise of the offspring 
to Abraham, and this is Galatians 3, that there's a seed, and ultimately that seed is one man, that he's the fulfillment of the Exodus. He leads the people on a new Exodus, and he gives um, uh, he gives greater blessings in a greater promised land, which is the whole world. You have him fulfilling the promise to David. He is now the king after David's line who's going to rule forever, building on 2 Samuel 7. He does that by his resurrection from the dead. He rules over the whole world. And he is going to consummate that, the promise to Abraham of an everlasting world, uh, inheritance, uh, kingdom. All of this comes together in the new heavens and the new earth. Mm-hmm. And so that's a, a very brief overview. Yeah. But, but what Christ does is fulfill all of these covenants, especially the covenant with Adam, but also these lesser ones as well. Super. Yeah, that's that's good. And with, um, with kind of that as a background, understanding the Bible's unified story and these covenant mediators who... Who are under those two covenant heads? And so your book, I mean, like like you just described over the last couple of minutes, your book does a good job understanding this. So how how does your book specifically on covenant and law and on the biblical theology of covenant? How does that fit specifically in this series from Dr. Glad? So the point of this series is to find some of the top issues in biblical theology and write a limited number of volumes that just covers them in an accessible way. Now, the hope is that these have good scholarship behind them, but are not overly burdened with technical footnotes and so forth. Yeah, uh, I imagine mine might have a few more footnotes and things in it. And one of the reasons for that is I really wanted to help readers. I had to sort of ask for a little more footnotes in this one. <laughs> yeah. I don't think they weigh the volume down, but if you no. want more, there is so much more to read on this. So I'm trying to give some pointers to Bavink, to Turretin, to the yeah. Westminster. Your suggested reading at the end of each chapter, I think, was really good, too. Yeah, and their suggested reading at the end of each chapter to go further. Uh, those are going to cover the topics um, on covenant or on uh, law in a greater way. And so it's designed to be accessible from college students to uh, you know, deacons or elders or, or lay folks who are interested in the church to pastors, uh, something you could give, you know, you, you, I'm a professor. I can give it to my sister, my, my parents, my in-laws, and so forth. And and the hope is that they could read it and understand it. And if they want to go deeper, they can. You know, there's yeah. more to it. But it's also trying to help even seminary students and so forth who are going really deep. Can you make it simple? And that's yeah. my, my hope in this book is that these this book and the rest of this series will make these complicated issues simple so that we don't get lost uh, in the forest for all the trees but we can see the whole forest and, and we can see the big picture and um, and identify what the point is of these topics so there's one on adam and israel and the church meaning you know who are the people of god and uh, i've read three of the four i guess by this point one of them being my own the exodus volume is very good by michael morales mm-hmm. i've not yet read rebels and exiles by um uh, i'm reading that one right now yeah yeah, so I'm reading, I've read my own, obviously, a few times. You have to read it after you write it to edit it <laughs> yeah. and so forth. Um, there's more coming, more good volumes coming as well. And so it's similar to, it's sort of a daughter, my understanding is, of, of the New Studies and Biblical Theology yeah, series that Don Carson edits. But that's sort of an open uh, an open invitation for all sorts of biblical theological reflections, whereas this series is more circumscribed. It's a, a step below that in terms of the academic nature of it they're a bit more accessible uh and hopefully there will be you know by the end of the series i don't know 10 or 12 volumes that cover 
some of the major themes that, that you can put in someone's hand and say, here, if you want to understand this topic, this book will give you a really good introduction to it. Yeah, you're doing a great service. This is a fantastic launching pad. Like you said, like I could give this to somebody that knows either nothing about covenants and it starts them off or even somebody that's well versed and it's it's just a good concise way of clarifying what they are it's it's great yeah yeah and so even for you what what got you interested specifically on writing on covenant and law well it's something that i, I sort of backed my way into when i worked on my phd thesis uh, aka dissertation and when I was overseas, I was working on the Gospels and on Christology in the Gospels. And my topic landed on the use of Deuteronomy in Matthew and on the theme of sonship. And that put me right uh, in the bullseye for reading about covenants. And so I, I understood the basics when I was in seminary in terms of biblical theology of covenants. Um, understood the importance of Deuteronomy for that as well. But I just did yeah. a deep dive into it and read some of the biblical documents and so forth when I did my dissertation and um, so I had a, a bit of a running start there and, and then I don't know ex all the reasons why but Ben Glad the editor of the series asked me eventually to write this volume and so having done some work in that already um, having had to wrestle through you know, do I believe in the new perspective of Paul or not a lot of that has to do with how you define the law uh, how you understand texts like Leviticus 18 uh, Romans 5 um, Genesis 3. So I had worked through some of that. And, and when I was in seminary, a lot of this was really uh, controversial at the time. And, and, and it was still the, the sands were being sifted to see, can we believe this? Can we not believe this? At least as a seminary student, that's where I was. So I had to yeah. wrestle through a lot of these questions, read a lot of new perspective stuff. Uh, that is the new perspective on Paul. I, I don't know if your uh, audience, uh, how well they, they know that, or maybe you, you've talked about that some. But a different approach to justification that's, and different approach to works of the law that says yeah. works of the law are particularly Jewish versus Gentile marki, uh, markers, uh, whereas the more traditional approach says works of the law are any human work. And I think that latter view, any human work, best does justice to the biblical text. And so I had, I had to wrestle with that and when I was in seminary and so forth and, and working on my PhD, clarifying those issues. And so it really was um, a good opportunity that, that I was happy to take on to try to bring some of these things together, explain covenants, explain how that helps unlock the biblical unity, um, do it from a Westminster Confession type of perspective. And even for those who may not adhere to the Westminster Confession, I hope this book will be beneficial. I hope it will show, uh, maybe compel some more people to go that direction. Yeah. But even for those who have a different faith commitment in terms of um, confessional commitment that they will find this to be valuable and helpful for them as well um, because there's a lot to agree on I think even if someone isn't a quote-unquote covenant theologian yeah uh, there's a lot that we can agree on for example I hope more attention is given to the Ten Commandments and how important they are even for new covenant believers mm -hmm. through this and I hope people will see that in the new covenant we are not uh, it's not up to us to rewrite the laws of what God has given to us but understand them and, and to obey them Oh, yeah, I totally agree. I think that the more I've understood covenants, the, the clarity of the gospel is just becoming more and more clear because there is the, you know, works versus grace, law versus gospel, that kind of thing. 
So that's really helpful. And like to your point, you don't have to be a confessionally orthodox reformed person to appreciate this. You just as a biblical Christian that this is really helpful. Yeah. And um, I mean, one of my goals, I think I've said it already is uh, there are people, well-meaning people, Christian people who, who will say things I'll hear it occasionally that in the old Testament, they were saved by works. And now in the new Testament, we're saved yeah. by grace. Yeah. And, and, without realizing that's a marcionistic uh, you know gnostic type of approach to the old testament right. and it doesn't fit with the new testament itself you know who looks they look back to the old testament for models of faith so i hope that helps people read the old testament as well and mm -hmm. uh, if they pick up this book to see how it's not so different from the new testament and um and there are some weird things in the old testament and a lot of those old those weird things by the way aren't necessarily right that they did but if you understand God's moral law doesn't change, then you can see that even in the Old Testament, uh, they had room for growth and the patriarchs were not perfect, uh, but they yeah. were saved by faith. And that can be encouraging for us to see, wait a minute, these guys were pretty messed up in some mm -hmm. ways. And yet God was saving them and using them as the central focus of the story. Mm -hmm. uh, so cool. Yeah, that's that's um, that's helpful to get some some background on this. And you kind of teased He's my, my next question. So can you give, with this understanding of covenant law and, and finding it throughout scripture, can you, can you give our listeners or those who are listening or um, those who want to buy this book a couple of um, how we can understand how covenant law specifically speak to how we interpret the Bible, interpret the gospel, interpret the Old Testament? So th are there a couple of texts that you can point to that an understanding of the covenant and law as you're describing it give us a fuller description of what we're reading? Yeah, let me give a, a couple of, of new examples. I think I've already mentioned to some degree Adam and Christ and understanding that uh, I think is key. And so just in passing, let me say texts like 1 Corinthians 15 and Romans 5, um, as well as texts like Galatians 3 and Romans 10, where they use Leviticus 18.5. I think those are going to be texts that will be helpful to see the way that Christ does what Adam did not do. Uh, now, a couple of, of maybe new things we haven't discussed. One of the things that this really opens up is a whole section of the Bible, the prophets. Hmm. The prophets are so hard to understand. And, yeah. and they, especially because people hear the word prophet and they think, oh, they predict the future. Yeah. Well, they can, you know, they often do that. But at a more fundamental level, the prophets are concerned with God's covenants and God's law. And hmm. really, if you want to understand the prophets, so much deals with these two topics. They are calling God's covenant people to live in accord with God's covenant law. And what they are doing is calling people back to the law of Moses, calling the king back to the law of Moses, calling the people back to the law of Moses, uh, critiquing outward obedience uh, and where there is a lack of internal obedience. So it really opens the prophets up to understand what a covenant lawsuit is. Um, why they remind them about what God has said. They are really reminding them of God's covenant, uh, what he has done for them, and reminding them of God's law and how they ought to obey. So it really opens up the prophets. Another place in the New Testament that this opens up is the book of Hebrews. Hmm. Hebrews is a really difficult book, and certainly there are a number of interpretive questions. One of the questions about Hebrews that gets a lot of time, uh, attention given to it, is the warning passages. Oh, yeah. And you, you will come across 
good interpretations of Hebrews, but sometimes the, the approach to the warning passages is one that I find to be less than compelling, where they're hypothetical uh, or they really teach you can lose your salvation. I, I don't think either one of those does justice to what Hebrews is doing. Instead, Hebrews gives us a picture of God's covenant people as a mixed community. Some people are only outwardly uh, members, and some are truly inwardly members. So you have the continued problem in the new covenant of a mixed community. Jeremiah 31 speaks about a day when there will be no division within God's covenant community, that all will know God from the least to the greatest, and there will be no need for a teacher. There will be no need for some of the things we have in this era. Well, a difference between Reformed theology and some other approaches is that Reformed theology says Jeremiah 31 is not yet fulfilled completely. And so the covenant community remains mixed. And if that's your approach, then the, the warning passages sound a lot like the prophets. The warning passages talk about God's people who are set apart from the world in one sense, but they may not really believe. Hmm. And it reminds us that in this era, there is going to be a mixed community. Yeah. And it's not until Christ returns that those warnings can be taken away. So I would understand in the book of Hebrews, the, the warnings really are like the prophets. They are covenant warnings for God's covenant people and urging them to be true covenant members, truly who believe, even if they've been baptized, it doesn't guarantee a heart that is fully committed to the Lord. And so I, I think covenant and law opens up both the prophets and Hebrews and, and other texts as well. The Sermon on the Mount makes a lot more sense this way. Yeah. For example, those are a couple that come to mind. Yeah, that's good. The first time I heard the, the covenantal interpretation of Hebrews made a ton of sense. Tasting of the glory to come, I mean, being the Lord's Supper, that they've actually tasted these things, yet don't profess. Even if it's outward, it's not inward. It was it, I mean, it was paradigm shifting for me, and I'm, I'm hopeful it's, it's, it's really helpful for others as well. Well, that's one of those interpretations that I haven't seen a lot of people interact with, but it's, it's the Reformed view, yeah. uh, historically speaking. And I've seen people uh, who, have, who have talked about it and mentioned it as a curiosity and kind of kept going, but uh, it's very well established in the tradition. And here's a place where I think the Reformed uh, biblical theological approach for hundreds of years, you know, all the way back to John Owen, uh, at least, uh, and has a lot to offer here, yeah. the, the, the current conversation. Yeah, that's that's great. So I'm I'm going to assume after hearing this and after reading your book, people are going to want to know like what else can we read from Dr. Crow that's that's coming up. So what after this book, assuming people are like, yeah, I'm going to get this and read this as much as I can and give it to other people. After this, what what else do you have coming up that people are going to be looking forward to? Uh, two items come to mind. One is a, a book that's written for a similar level that's scheduled to come out in October with Baker, and that's called Why Did Jesus Live a Perfect Life? Huh. And it engages some of the more recent debates about uh, the, some of these same issues come up in that book about the law, about perfect obedience being necessary for eternal life. But the question is, what does the Bible say about Jesus being perfectly obedient? How does that relate to securing eternal life? And uh, what is the nature of, of um, his righteousness given to us? What is the nature of faith? Uh, how do we understand faith? Is it a work or is it uh, a, an instrument that is uh, a, an instrument that receives? So that's designed to help people understand, again, the logic of the reform view about why we talk about things like imputation of righteousness rather than um, rather than um, 
an impartation of righteousness and justification. Why we say justification is declarative, not transformative. And so some of those things uh, come to view in that. It's a fairly short book about the same length as this. That's scheduled for yeah. October. And then the a, a bigger project that I'm currently in the middle of researching and writing is a book on the person and work of Christ for a new series being published by Lexham Press on biblical doctrines. And um, the goal for that is to have the manuscript finished by the end of the year. And then I'm not sure when it will come out, but probably 2022 at the earliest mm. will be the time that mm. came out. Cool. That's more yeah, like a seminary like type of text. You're doing right now. Yeah, sorry, go ahead. Yeah. yeah, it sounds like it's building off what you're doing right now, all this new work. Yeah, yeah that's the way these things go is, is the book on Christ obedience builds on some things I've done in the past. Um, the path of faith builds a little bit on what I had done in my uh, PhD work on. Um, the person and work of Christ book is a bit of a new branch out, but it has a lot of, of biblical. It's going to be a combination of biblical exegesis, the historical survey and of systematic and practical uh, approaches. So it's going to be quite wide, wide ranging. Nice. Yeah, when all is said and done. Yeah, sounds good. Yeah, and just to um, close us out, I wanted to go look at your summary at the end of the book and talk about your four key points. Really wraps this up in a bow. Uh, number one, all people are obligated to obey their creator. Number two, God freely entered into a covenant with humanity to offer eternal life on the basis of a perfect obedience. Number three, only Jesus can perfectly obey God's law. Number four, the law continues to show us how to obey God today. So I liked how that you wrapped that all up into those four key points. <laughs> yeah, and if you can remember those four points, in many ways, that's the point of the book. And yeah. I don't want to leave without emphasizing again that all of this emphasis on our obedience, it really is biblical, I think, and necessary, but it's also insufficient on its own because what saves us is what Christ has done for us. Yep. And our faith is not in how well we can obey the Ten Commandments. Far from it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Our faith is in Christ, who is our perfect mediator, the God-man. And only he can save us from God's wrath because he is God. And only he can perfectly obey because he was a perfect human who came as the last Adam. That is where our hope is and must be. And so I don't want your listeners to come away from this thinking that this is, a, um, this is all about us. And so yeah. the goal is to keep the focus on Christ as much as possible throughout this book even though that, that will be much more explicit in the New Testament sections. Um, I, I do want readers to look for those places in the Old Testament portions where I try to draw our attention to Christ because yeah. he is the, the hope of the gospel, and it's very much related to law and covenant. Yeah, yeah. and I, I think you do a great job of connecting each and every chapter, each and every covenant to its, its ultimate covenant head and the one who fulfilled the Adamic covenant and every other covenant looked towards. So yep. that, was, that was great. So. Thanks for writing this book. Well, it, it was a real honor. It was, and I'm happy to be a part of this series. And And one of the encouraging things is, I hope listeners to your podcast and others, uh, this has a chance to reach more people because it's not as technical. So yeah. I'm hoping I'm hoping that those interested will find this to be a helpful uh, way to approach the topic. Yep. Yeah, well, we're thankful. Yeah, thank you for your time. And we hope to have you on again soon to talk about other things. But yeah, we, we hope that this reaches a broader audience, we have a more biblical and robust understanding and, and leads us to the obedience of Christ. Well, thanks for the opportunity to be on. I've enjoyed it. Thank you. God bless you. Hey, what's up, guys? I hope you enjoyed that episode with Dr. Crow. I thought it was great. Peter, what did you think? 
I thought it was fantastic to use one of my one of my uh, my most used words. Yeah, it was it was great hearing hearing this theme of covenant and law from Old to New Testament in a way that I think was fresh, fresh mm-hmm. but um, understandable. It wasn't like super scholarly or academic. It was I think it was like actually understandable for people in the pew. Yeah, and that's the whole motivation of this series from uh, from IVP Academic the the um, ESBT, Essential Studies in Biblical Theology. They want to keep these books under 200, under 150 pages, really kind of wet your palate on the topic. You're not going to be, you know, getting every single detail out of it, but you're going to get what you need to know from one of the best authors in each of these topics. They're fantastic, just little books to kind of get through and, and you'll get some great information. So, yeah, and even as at the end of each chapter, um, if you want to read further beyond his book, he has some he has some book recommendations, articles, and stuff that you guys can read further. But it's a great, like you said, it's a great what your palate. Let's learn more about covenant and law. Yep. Um, but yeah, we're excited about this one. Good deal. So we're giving out some copies. Yep. Okay. Good. And <laughs> didn't want to <laughs> put you on the spot. And so if I was wrong, IDPs and mad at me or something no no so it's <laughs> yeah. good a confirmation we're giving out some copies of this yeah we're giving out copies good so same deal as before uh itunes is great we if you're gonna rate us please do five stars and please leave a comment because yeah. if you just do the stars we, we have, have no, no idea, idea who you are <laughs> <laughs> we can't like there's no back-end access to itunes that we can figure oh this person left us a five star but we appreciate um, it anyway. Oh, totally. Book, yeah. We're not saying don't do it. Yeah. yeah. We just, we don't know who you are. Yeah. And then um, if uh, you also want to get our attention would be uh, Twitter is probably the best way. Retweeting, yeah. um, commenting, just really kind of making sure that we got your attention. Um, and then we'll give you a shout out. Yeah, we'll shout you out. And it's, I mean, I think it's also helpful for the publisher to get more word about them. And I think especially for the author, for his work to get more exposure, because these works are are solid stuff that that brings doctrine to to everyday people. So we, yeah, if you guys can tweet or quote tweet or retweet, whatever it is, and then, um, yeah, shout out the author, shout out the publisher, shout out all that stuff. Yeah, so um, speaking of that, Here's a good example. There is a really cool new listener of ours. Yeah, and yeah. We just saw this. This I saw this this afternoon. I think Nick saw it like a day or so ago. Yeah, and she posted a review of us on iTunes. Yeah. Um, great. It's from Teacher Mama Twenty Four. So it sounds like you're a teacher and you're a mom. And you're a mom. <laughs> And you love yeah. the number 24. <laughs> or oh, you're 24, who I knows? A, I was a big Ken Griffey Jr. fan when I was a kid, and his jersey number was 24, you know, yeah. and Kobe Bryant, 24. So Kobe Bryant, RIP. Yep. Uh, but teacher mama, great comment. We love you, sister. Uh, you, um, I'm not sure if you're looking for a specific books, but we loved your comments so much that feel free to reach out to us at guiltgracepod at gmail.com or um, – or even direct message us if you're on Twitter. And then yeah. I, we'll figure out what maybe what book we have available. Yeah, we'll get you, you. We'll get you a book. Yeah. So yeah, you especially yeah, you especially shouted out the book club. And so we we would love to get you a book. 
Yeah. Um, we're glad to know that you're showing your husband this. And yeah, we're, we're super excited to be part of this, this walk with you. All for the kingdom, right? Heck yeah. So yeah, uh, contact us, let us know, and we'll kind of give you a pick from the litter and whatever book you want, we'll, uh, we'll send your way. Sounds good. So Other than that, next week we have on book club, as I pull this up, we have on book club part one of our interview with Dr. Craig Carter on interpreting scripture with a great tradition. This is with Baker Academic. I just finished this a couple days ago. So, <laughs> if you, yeah, if you guys want to pick up this book before we start this interview, <clears throat> it's, a, it's a great book. He's uh he's showing you basically how the church fathers interpreted scripture and gives us an introduction to the church fathers and how they interpret scripture and, and how we can learn from the church fathers. Yeah. Uh, how they kind of they the church fathers didn't make anything new, it's they're following the apostles. And I think we've gotten yeah. away from that that uh that interpretation. And so Dr. Carter's gonna going to uh yeah, give us some pointers on how to how to do this stuff. It's good stuff. Yeah, I was just slightly chuckling because the second you said I just finished it. I was about to say, I just started it. <laughs> <laughs> we bookended. Yeah, I uh, I just started it actually this morning. Um, and uh, so hopefully I can get it done by the time we have the interview. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, yeah, look forward to this episode. Uh, if, you, if you guys want to go to Baker and, and pick up a copy so you're kind of ready and you have it in hand when you listen to this to this episode. So we're excited for this. It, it's kind of further introducing some more um, Trinity stuff, some more Doctrine of God stuff, some stuff that we've really kind of been hammering on the last couple of weeks or months. So look forward to that next week, and we will see you guys then. Awesome.